Hey, my name's Matt Kennedy, and this is the Steadfast Podcast. This podcast exists to use Bible study and theological teaching to encourage you to be steadfast in your faith. Thank you for taking time out of your day to check out the Steadfast Podcast. I hope today's episode is an encouragement to you. Today on the Steadfast Podcast, we are going to start our first book study. We're going to start with the book of Luke. Now, with this episode, I am going to use the first four verses in Luke to help us get an introduction to the book. Now, before I start, I really do want to give you a fair warning here. Since this episode is very much an introductory episode, it's going to look a little bit different from our typical Bible study episodes. So, with that said... As we work through our introduction on Luke, I really want you to see the man who wrote the book that you may know very well. I also want to point out some things along the way that may be key as we journey through this book together. Now with all that said, let's get started in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Quote, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught." Luke tells us that many have undertaken to compile a narrative. This narrative is the life and the ministry and the work of Jesus Christ. Now, by this point in history, Mark and Matthew have already written their accounts. Luke wanting to write an orderly account isn't shade on them. It's a desire to complement their work. You see, each gospel account, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they emphasize different aspects of the life and ministry of Jesus. Matthew, for example, he is the one that wrote the gospel account that is most focused on Jesus fulfilling Old Testament prophecies, meaning that it was probably written with a Jewish audience in mind. Luke, on the other hand, has a different focus. And for us to really get at that focus and the things that he emphasizes in the book, I want us to turn to Colossians chapter 4. I think there's some verses there that can help us understand Luke the man a little bit better. At the end of Colossians 4, Paul is conducting his typical final greetings that he does so often, where he makes references to his co-laborers for Christ, the the men who are traveling and, and working and ministering along with Paul. Now, starting in verse 10, he lists some of his co-laborers. So Colossians chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, quote, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. They have been a comfort to me. End quote. When Paul says, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom, he means that these are the only Jews that are, are traveling and ministering with him. That means everyone else is a Gentile. So, Paul, after verse 11, will start listing some of his Gentile fellow workers, his Gentile friends. And when we get down to verse 14, I want you to see what name pops up. So Colossians 4, verse 14, quote, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas, end quote. 
This quick little reference here gives us three big facts about who Luke is, and these things are supported elsewhere in the New Testament. So the first thing, and maybe that's obvious by the way I set this up, is that he's a Gentile. Luke 1.3, which we've already read, tells us that he is most likely addressing this to a Gentile. As he addresses this recipient, most excellent Theophilus. Now, we don't know the identity of Theophilus. We do know that it is a Greek name that means friend of God, or could also be translated as lover of God. Real quick thing on that. So it's two Greek words mushed together, theos, which means God, and philia, which is the friendship type of love. So you could see pretty clearly and easily how it could be translated either way. But he addresses him as most excellent. Now that's not a term or a title that shows up a lot in the New Testament. The only other places I can think of where we see the most excellent title is in the book of Acts. As when Paul is before Roman officials, he calls Felix and Festus in Acts 23 and 26 most excellent. Now they're governors, they are Roman officials that he is giving this honor to. So it's not a stretch to say that Theophilus was likely a Roman official of some kind that needed to hold some degree of anonymity. We also see Luke's Gentile emphasis throughout the book. Now Luke being a Gentile, he would be very familiar with the idea of being considered an outsider to the Jews, an outcast if you will. And from that background, you can certainly understand why Luke goes out of his way throughout the book to highlight those who are often treated as outsiders in a Jewish world. That doesn't just mean Gentiles, but it certainly includes Gentiles. So we can see this in so many places. Whether you're talking about the people from the coast of Tyre and Sidon who heard the Sermon on the Mount, these were heavy Gentile areas, or the centurion whose faith impresses Jesus. Or also the, the women who are traveling with Jesus in a world that wouldn't even allow women to testify in court. Luke goes out of his way to highlight both Gentiles and other outsiders. The next thing that we see from this verse in Colossians 4 is that Luke is a physician. You'll notice there's a lot of evidence of this in the Gospel of Luke. While all the Gospels reveal Jesus to be a healer of various diseases, Luke takes a special focus on this. I'm thinking of a couple places in particular. Uh, The first one's in Luke 14, verse 2. Now, in the ESV, Luke writes, And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. The CSB might be a little bit more clear if dropsy is not a common term to you. And it translated this way, quote, There in front of him was a man whose body was swollen with fluid. Another instance that jumps out to me is in Luke 22, verse 44. Here Jesus is praying at the Mount of Olives just before his arrest, and it it reads like this, quote, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground, end quote. This surely fascinated Luke. I mean, think, he's a physician. Even if he had never heard of this medical phenomenon happening before, he had to be fascinated. Today, we can liken this condition to something called hematidrosis. Some consider this verse to be symbolic, but I really think it's a literal detail that Luke is throwing in there. In this passage, Jesus is looking down the barrel, so to speak, at the judgment of God that he is going to endure for all who would believe. No one, and I mean no one, would be more aware of what that means than Jesus. You see, it wasn't just nails and it wasn't just a crown of thorns that Jesus had to experience. It's the wrath of God. 
Luke adds a critical word here. He says agony. Jesus is looking at the wrath he is to experience in our place, and his body aches. You see, hematidrosis takes place when the body is in such unbelievable stress that vessels literally burst and bleed into the sweat glands. I can just see Luke being so intrigued by the medical details, even if he didn't have a diagnosis to put on it. From this, we see that Luke is a Gentile. We see that Luke is a physician. And one more detail. He's beloved by Paul and others. Now, considering Paul was not one to pull punches, I think this says a lot about Luke as a man. In fact, if we fast forward a few years to about 67 AD, Paul is writing his last letter of his that we have in the New Testament. That's 2 Timothy. You see, when Acts ended, Paul was under house arrest in Rome. After Acts, Paul was released for a bit and then arrested again. This arrest would be the one that leads to his execution. It's during this time, this imprisonment, that Paul wrote 2 Timothy. And check out what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, quote, Luke alone is with me, end quote. Luke alone is with me. See, Luke was not a fair-weather guy. He was in it till the end. When we talk about Luke, we are talking about a man of integrity, of courage, and above all, a genuine love for Jesus. You don't stick through all that he went through if there's not a genuine, authentic, transformative love for Christ. So in Colossians 4, we get three really big descriptors of who Luke is. He's a Gentile, he's a physician, and he's beloved by Paul and others. Luke probably used Mark's account and Matthew's account as sources for the account he sent to Theophilus. There's definitely overlap. But Luke's gospel account is also about 60% unique, meaning he got a lot of information from somewhere else. You see, Luke joined Paul on his second missionary journey, which is around like 49-52 AD. So that's a little over a decade before we believe the book of Luke was written. So when he says, having followed all these things closely for some time, he could be talking about a decade or more. And it's very possible his research gifts and his interest were put to good use before that. So with spending as much time with Paul as he did, Luke surely learned a lot from Paul and his other co-laborers. That, in addition to using Matthew and Mark, is surely a significant treasure trove of information. But there's one other source that Luke likely used that is incredibly significant. You see, Luke spends way more time talking about the pre-ministry part of the story of Jesus than any other gospel writer. Matthew comes in second place, but he spends about 65 verses describing that time. Luke, on the other hand, spends a full 170 verses on this epic. That's more than two and a half times the attention Matthew pays to it. So the question to be asked here is, where do you think Luke could get so much information on this part of the story of Jesus? It's Mary. Mary, the mother of Jesus. Can you imagine? Luke, this Gentile physician that has spent his whole life aimed in a particular direction. Then one day he hears the gospel. He's radically changed. Suddenly everything in his life is now geared towards serving Jesus, to making Jesus known in a lost world, to honoring his name with his actions and his words and all that he does. See, he had roughed it and he had suffered with Paul in mission trips. Now, as he is seeking to honor the Lord with an orderly account, he's sitting down with Mary, the mother of Jesus. Such a big moment for him. And it also gives a little glimpse into how Mary could have served the early church in the decades after the death and resurrection of Jesus. So now that we've talked about Luke the man for a bit, 
as well as some of his sources for the gospel account. Let's quickly turn our attention to how we know Luke wrote it in the first place. Though Luke is writing to someone, he doesn't write like Paul did. He doesn't start off by introducing himself or or pulling rank on anybody. And he doesn't pull a John and not so subtly throw in the disciple who Jesus loved. No, Luke is subtle, almost as if he wanted to fly under the radar. We know the same author wrote Luke and Acts because of how they start off. We've already read the introduction to Luke. And Acts 1, verse 1, reads like this, quote, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, end quote. It's not exactly a great leap to connect the two books. Clues as to who the author is are found in what we call the we passages of Acts. For much of Acts, the author uses language like them, they and there. In Acts 16 and a handful of other places after Acts 16, the author changes his language. He uses words like we, us, and our. He's telling us which parts he was present for. Here's what we know. The author has to be someone who is working and traveling with Paul, but it can't be Barnabas. It can't be Silas or Timothy or Mark or Gaius or Aristarchus or a number of other folks who are listed in Acts. And we can also eliminate guys like Demas because in 2 Timothy 4.10, Paul wrote this, quote, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. End quote. The list of suspects gets narrowed down really quickly. And really quickly, Luke becomes the obvious answer. And it becomes maybe even more obvious when we find out that the early church all believed that Luke wrote this account. In seminary, I learned about the Muratorian Fragment. It's a list of New Testament books that dates back to the 2nd century. It also happens to list Luke as the author. It actually wasn't even disputed until fairly recently. When a secular scholar looks at the Bible, they were often dated later than it was actually written. This is often because of prophecy fulfilled. They assume neither Jesus nor any other prophet could actually predict future events. They assume that it's impossible for them to speak on something that's going to happen in the future so accurately. They believe the account must have been written after the supposedly prophesied event occurs. One such issue is found in Luke 19, verses 43 through 44, which reads, quote, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. End quote. Jesus is prophesying about a day when the temple will be completely and totally torn down. Destruction will come on Jerusalem like they have never seen in their lifetime. Now, Jesus is saying this around 33 AD. In around 70 AD, around 37 years later, the Romans would utterly demolish the temple, fulfilling what Jesus had prophesied. If you're listening to this podcast, I'm thinking it is likely that you're a Christian. So you would agree with me that Jesus, being the Son of God, has all the ability in the world to know the future. He's got the playbook, right? But if you're not a believer, this could seem absolutely impossible. Which is why secular scholars will often place the book being written much later than it was by someone different than who actually wrote it. Now, we have our own piece of evidence that it was written before the destruction of the temple anyways. You see, we've already said Luke is the author of both Luke and Acts. Luke was one of Paul's best friends. He was with Paul to the very end. 
as we've already read from the Second Timothy verse. Luke also shared a lot of details with us about the life of Paul, and really more specifically, after Paul was arrested. Paul was arrested in Acts 21. The rest of the book, all the way to Acts 28, is spent describing Paul's time before officials, his time traveling between officials, and ultimately when he ended up in house arrest in Rome. Paul would be released after the end of two years. He would later be arrested again, leading to when he is ultimately executed around 67 AD. Considering all the details Luke gives us, and that we know in 2 Timothy that Luke was with him during the second arrest, it is absolutely unthinkable that Luke would leave out Paul's execution, unless it hadn't happened yet. So if Luke wrote Luke and Acts before 67 AD, then he obviously wrote it before 70 AD, when the temple was destroyed. Now, do you know what that means? That means the prophecy of Jesus in Luke 19 is 100% legit. Now, before we call it a day, I want to close with two points of application here. Our first point is that God uniquely calls and equips his people. Luke was uniquely suited to write this gospel account. His attention to detail was so precise. I want to give you a fun fact. Luke is the wordiest book of the New Testament. And Acts comes in second place. So Luke not only wrote the longest book in the New Testament by words, he also wrote the second longest with Acts. Matthew has more chapters than Luke, but it has fewer words. So for people who love the extra detail in their stories, Luke is your guy. Think about what David wrote in Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. Quote, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. End quote. David reveals something about how God makes us. He makes us and designs us with purpose to glorify him in ways he's already planned out. He has made you, he has gifted you, he has empowered you to glorify him through obedience to his call in your life. And look, I I know you may be sitting there and you're like, I don't know what that is. I don't know what he's called me to do. And I, I would give two quick points of advice there. The first one is that you should ask other believers around you, Look, we all have blind spots in our life, and and sometimes our insecurity, sometimes our self-doubt, sometimes our stubbornness, among so many other things, can cause us not to see where God has blessed us, where He has gifted us, where He is wanting to use us. So asking other believers you trust can be a game changer. Another thing I would suggest is as you're reading the Word and seeing what His design for life is, that you would be praying earnestly, that you would be asking God, Lord, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to glorify your name, to bring honor to your name as I walk through this life and see what doors are opened? Our second point is God's Word is trustworthy and true. You may remember Luke 1 verse 4 reads as follows, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught, end quote. Luke wrote to Theophilus so that he may have certainty about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. We talked about fulfilled prophecy already, how Jesus said the temple would be destroyed, and then 37 years later, boom, it happened. 
Fulfilled prophecy is one reason to believe that God's word is trustworthy and true. It's not the only reason, but it's a good reason. Did you know that in the Old Testament there are at least... 322 prophecies about Jesus. Everything from where he would be born to how he would be treated to how he would die and so many other things. Josh and Sean McDowell wrote a book called More Than a Carpenter. In that book, they talk about a couple mathematicians who crunched the numbers on the odds that one person, any person, could fulfill eight of those prophecies. The odds are about one in 100 quadrillion. Like, I can't even count that high. How wild is that? They said it's like covering the state of Texas with coins two feet deep, marking a random coin somewhere, putting it in a random spot somewhere, then blindfolding someone, setting them off in a random direction from a random spot. They have about a 1 in 100 quadrillion chance of picking up the marked coin on the first try. And that's just for eight prophecies, y'all. 322 prophecies. That's so far beyond what's even considered statistically possible. That shows us that for Jesus, who did fulfill them, it was truly a miraculous work of God who makes all things possible. All things possible. Y'all, this is not just a normal book. This is God's Word. Thanks for listening to the Steadfast Podcast. I want to remind you that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, Paul wrote this, quote, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain, end quote. So in light of biblical truth, let us be steadfast, immovable. Let us remember that through Jesus, not one labor is in vain, not one trial is in vain, not one effort in all of our lives is in vain. Because he gives purpose, and that purpose rings through eternity. That's all I've got for you today. Thank you so much for listening. And don't forget, if you've got questions you would like answered, you can email me at matt at steadfastpodcast.com.